Thank you very much. Uh, very pleased to be speaking here today. As has been said, I'm uh, Director of History and Policy, which is, is why I suppose I'm speaking. When I heard this event was happening, I thought, very, very interesting. I'd like to come along as a member of the audience. Uh, not specifically an area where, where I have expertise, but then it was suggested to me it might be useful to talk about the, the historical backgrounds to where we are now and try and provide some kind of perspective as to how we came to be where we are. The main point I would like to make really is that uh, we've been here before. This is not in many ways a surprising position to be in, although the some of the particulars of it are quite surprising. And I suspect the kind of dilemmas we're facing now aren't simply going to go away, whatever the result of the referendum uh, taking place next month. So that's my main point. Uh, the, the place of Britain, or before that, England, uh, Wales and Scotland within Europe's within Europe has always been a complicated issue. There's no question that, that the UK is a European state. Uh, and this is a point, actually, if you reread Margaret Thatcher's uh, Bruges speech from the late 1980s, she does make very clear that she sees uh, the UK as being part of Europe. So when, when we hear discussions about uh, should we withdraw from Europe, obviously that's a slightly uh, misleading question to put. Can everyone hear me? Good, okay, good. So, uh, but on the other hand, it has always been an issue around what is the particular position of the UK within this continent and, and what our relationship is with the other parts of the continent, whether we're somehow a member, a part of this continent. Lots of different factors have contributed to that. The fact that we've been an island, although that's not always been as important as is sometimes made out. The fact that we had this enormous global empire. Some people have said, well, that means we look a bit beyond Europe. We look to uh, the whole world. We're not just focused on our immediate region. All these factors get, get raised as, as perhaps suggesting that uh, we're some somehow different. Another argument that gets put forward is a political one. We don't have revolutions here, apparently. They have them in mainland Europe. Obviously, historically, that's not quite true. We've, we've had plenty of revolutions, not, maybe not any recently, but we've certainly had them. And then also this idea that uh, we've, we've not been invaded, which again is in, incredibly misleading, but certainly uh, not invaded during the world wars and the actual world wars. The actual troop battles didn't take place in the UK, but certainly there were, there were plenty of bombs falling during the Second World War. But either way, those kind of arguments often come forward, and they, they've certainly had some kind of force across the political spectrum in the UK. So there, there's been resistance to the idea of European Union, European integration, particularly in the way it developed after the Second World War, from different, different parts of the political spectrum. As we heard in the introduction, we hear about the divisions in the Conservative Party today, that they're certainly real, they've certainly uh, been around for a long while, but equally there's been a history of division within the Labour Party over this same issue, over what should be our role within European integration. So immediately after the, the Second World War, the then Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin, certainly there's an important trade union link there, initially looked like he was quite keen on the idea of some kind of form of European integration. But then when we were really presented with some of the substance of what it might mean in terms of actually sharing sovereignty, the then Labour government 
went a bit wobbly on the whole idea and wasn't as keen on it. And therefore, we didn't really... We've heard about late arrivals and, and that kind of thing already this morning. Well, we, we turned ourselves into a bit of a late arrival to the uh, European Integration Project so that we didn't really want to get involved, and this was continued under subsequent Conservative governments, in the initial schemes for supranational integration of, of some kind. Therefore, by the time we did join, the thing had been drawn up along lines we hadn't been able to directly participate in. So that's, a, that's, that's an important part of the whole background, that, that the UK, there is this cultural resistance to European integration, particularly when it involves sharing sovereignty, and resistance to this idea of, of federalism, that we take part in some kind of European federation. And although actually the UK made a massive intellectual contribution to the idea of federalism, we, we also resisted it. So then let's get on to 1975, and I suppose that's an important comparator that gets raised, gets raised often now. Why did we have a referendum in 1975? Well, and I think the similarities are going to become apparent when, when we look at this, but a lot of it was down to a division within the party of government at the time, which was then the Labour Party. Harold Wilson had been elected in, in the two elections of 1974 on what looked like a bit of a Eurosceptic ticket, and that was the way he presented it. And he was even able to get Enoch Powell on board for actually advocating that the Labour government was the only way to save the country from being uh, dissolved into a European federation. And so Wilson got back into power after the, Heath, after the period of opposition during the Heath government partly by presenting himself as a Eurosceptic, as to, to use a term we'd use now. And that contributed to his, uh, his improved electoral performance in, in 1974. But actually, it, it seems fairly clear that it wasn't ever going to be as straightforward as that. Nothing ever is straightforward with Harold Wilson, as we know, and certainly his handling of, Europe, of, of the European issue wasn't straightforward. And although he presented himself as a Eurosceptic, it was partly an internal manoeuvre within his party. There was rising Euroscepticism within the party. Certainly people like <coughs> Tony Benn was, had turned very much against European integration, although he'd been very keen on it earlier in the 1960s, in, an, in his earlier incarnation. And then people like Michael Foote certainly weren't, weren't, uh, were worried about it. And there were people like Barbara Castle as well. So there were people within the party, and e even James Callaghan was presenting himself as being, uh, being uh, not very keen on European integration. So there were forces within the party that Wilson felt that it, the only way he could hold the party together was around the idea of having a referendum on continued membership preceded by a renegotiation of terms of membership. So this is a trick which certainly was developed by Harold Wilson and which in the end, in the short term, worked out quite well for him. He had this renegotiation when he was re-elected. He was able to claim some kind of victory around the terms he secured. Then he held the referendum. <coughs> and had decided that he wanted a yes vote, felt able to recommend a yes vote to the, to the public, held the referendum, and won it on a, on a substantial majority and on a, what looks today like a reasonable turnout. So in those senses, as a political manoeuvre, it was successful. In the longer term for the Labour Party, it wasn't necessarily as successful because it wasn't long before Labour was arguing internally again about the issue of Europe. 
During the 1975 uh, referendum campaign, it was a suspension of collective responsibility, like the one we've had today, so that people could remain within the cabinet while opposing the official government position of a yes vote. And people such as uh, Barbara Castle took, took up that opportunity, and their special advisers, including a young Jack Straw, formed what was called the Dissenting Minister's Secretariat to actually help them run their campaign. So that suspension took place. In 1977-78, they had to have another suspension of collective responsibility, so the issue came back again, this time over around the issue of elections to the European Parliament. So the referendum didn't really make the issue go away for Labour, and by the early 80s, Labour had a policy of withdrawing without even holding a referendum. So it didn't really work for Labour. And did it really work for the country more broadly? Well, we're having another referendum now, so the evidence would seem to be that the 1975 referendum, which was presented as a one-off, it was presented as, we're never going to have another referendum on anything, not only not we're going to have another referendum on Europe. This was a constitutional innovation to which there was a lot of resistance at the time. But the referendum was held. Apparently, it was a pretty resounding success for the Yes camp. But the issue didn't go away, because this is a deep-seated issue in the UK, how we relate to the continent of which we were part. And simply holding a referendum perhaps isn't going to resolve it. Now, over time, the, the two main parties have almost swapped positions on this issue, and now Labour are uh, more apparently the, the pro-European Union party, although how enthusiastic Labour and the wider Labour movement is for, is for European integration is another question. And it's now the Conservatives who have kind of been consumed by these divisions for a period of, of more than 20 years now, really. So the, the, those positions are swapped, but the underlying problem of what do we do about our position in, in Europe has not gone away, and I'm not convinced that this referendum, whatever the outcome, will make it go away. Thank you. Thank you.